years old up to sixth grade can be dismissed to children's church with the Piros out the back door. And uh, Josh and Katie, I'm going to, this may seem a little awkward, I'm going to ask you guys to come sit right here. Can you do that? Okay. If you don't mind sitting in front of the Caples. Um, the pastor, one of the pastors I was an assistant under for seven and a half years, he would actually put two chairs right in the middle of the aisle and make them sit right there. Just your second row is fine. You don't have to be on the front row. That's too conspicuous, okay? I know that'll, let's make you as comfortable as possible. But uh, that way, because I'm going to direct a, a number of remarks specifically to you all this morning. Would you join me in Colossians chapter 1 in your Bibles? Colossians chapter 1. And verse number 21, we'll begin reading there in just a moment. Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 21. That statement in the song Becca just uh, sang there, Weakness will be power when leaning hard on thee. Aren't you glad for the power of the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, Without him, as Jesus said in John 15, truly we uh, can do nothing. Colossians chapter 1, ordination messages are always unique because they address in some way or another the young man being ordained and by extension his wife, uh, but also the congregation as a whole. And uh, so I've sought to do that and I'm sure Brother Eggerdahl has been praying about that as far as the direction of his message this evening and I'm looking forward to that. Let me encourage you to be back to hear Brother Eggerdahl tonight, always a blessing for me when I get to hear him preach and looking forward to his ministry to us this evening. But uh, all that being said, I'm going to be directing some remarks to Josh and Katie, but also to all of us as a whole, and so let us all give good heed uh, to what the Spirit of God wants to say to us today. Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 21, from prison... The Apostle Paul, the human penman, under inspiration, writes to the believers in the church at Colossae and says this, verse 21, And you, that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. In the body of his flesh, through death, what was his purpose in doing this? To present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from, notice this statement, the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to the saints, or to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of his mystery, of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. Notice this statement, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. In verse number 23, the Apostle Paul refers to the hope of the gospel which sustained him and motivated him. 
And in verse number 27, Paul refers to the hope of glory which motivated him and sustained him in ministry and those to whom he ministered. And so with those two statements, the hope of the gospel and the hope of glory in mind, I would like to preach a message this morning entitled, The Minister's Hope. The Minister's Hope. Let's pray. Father, as we look into your word, this passage this morning, in the time that we have together, I pray that our hearts would be strengthened. I pray in particular that Josh and Katie would be strengthened. There are wonderful days ahead and there are some difficult days ahead. It's just a fact of life and ministry. And so I pray that you would strengthen them, remind them, anchor their souls to these wonderful two hopes that are mentioned here in this passage. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I subscribe to an email, a periodic email, uh, that is sent out by a, an older man in ministry that I respect very highly. And the most recent one to come through had two excerpts. I want to share those with you this morning. He quotes a man by the name of Russell Blowers who offered up the following description of what uh, some of us would recognize as a pastor. And I quote him. Somewhere between the call of God and the heart ward of the local hospital, there exists a specialist in everything. Variously called a minister, a pastor, a clergyman. He is... In most cases, I put that in there, a hero to his wife, a stranger to his children, a fine boy to his mother, an easy handout to some down and outers, a name on the mailing list of hundreds of agencies and organizations, an example to his flock. To some, he's a fuddy-duddy. To some, a stuffed shirt. To some, he's a character that's never lived it up, experienced the real world. To some, he's reverend. To others, he's Johnny on the spot when death's angel hovers over a loved one. He's the one who is called when medics have done all that they can do. He's the man who can mend marriages but can't fix his wife's toaster. <laughs> he's the one who marries young lovers, prays with the sick, and buries the dead. He's a financial expert, a public orator, a janitor, an errand boy, a typist, a file clerk, a writer, a public relations expert, a poor golfer, a professional coffee drinker, a journalist, a reformer, an evangelist, a pastor, a business executive, a counselor, a prophet, a bookworm, a diplomat, a human being, a sinner, a very poor golfer, bass, tenor, planner, and a terrible golfer. <laughs> I'm glad people don't set the expectation, amen? A focus on the family study, James Dobson's ministry several years ago was taken, and its conclusions are heavy. It's estimated from the study that was done that 1,500 pastors leave the ministry each month due to moral failure, contention in churches, or spiritual burnout. 50% of pastors, this study found will be divorced before the time they leave the ministry. 80% of pastors feel discouraged or unqualified in their roles as pastor. 50% of pastors are so discouraged that they would leave the ministry if they had another way to make a living. Four out of five of Bible school and or seminary graduates will leave the ministry in their first five years after graduation. 80% of spouses feel overworked and 80% of them wish their husbands were not in the ministry. 70% of ministers fight depression, 40% have had an extramarital affair, and 70% of pastors say that the only time they spend studying the Word of God is when they are preparing a message. 
you're about this time, some of you are saying, Pastor, that's a great way to begin a message. Some might even want to rush out of your seat to Josh right now and say, rethink this, would you? But I want to say this, yet, in spite of difficulties, for 2,000 years and more, if we count Old Testament preachers and prophets, there are men cataloged by Scripture and history who have started and finished well. While they may have finished bloodied and bruised, scarred and worn, like that character in John Bunyan's sequel to The Pilgrim's Progress, a man he called Mr. Valiant for the truth. You can look his life up. While they may have finished bloodied and bruised, scarred and worn, they have finished with an abundant entrance into the heavenly realm and to the welcome home anthem of the heavenly choir and to the joyful sound of our Lord saying, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. The question I pose this morning then is what sustained them? What bolstered them in the difficulties? What upheld them? What strengthened them? What encouraged them? What supported them? When, as the songwriter said, all around their soul gave way. Aren't you glad that that didn't stop there? And the songwriter said, he then is all my hope and stay. But what was it that sustained them when friends turned on them? When fame fled as if we need it anyway? When our reputation suffered? What is it that sustains folks in ministry when the fruit of their labors sour or dissipate? When even in some cases family resists, when sons in the faith will forsake the faith, when fields of ministry before you will be closed, and when feelings of inadequacy and discouragement overwhelm you. What is it that upheld men before? What is it that motivated them to keep getting up? If we were to ask the Apostle Paul that question, he would speak of two great hopes the hope of the gospel, and the hope of glory. Remember, remember, Paul wrote this while sitting in prison for preaching the gospel. And yet he speaks of the hope of the gospel. He speaks of the hope of glory. And Josh, I want you to understand this morning that these are your hopes too. And Katie, really, these are the hopes of all of us. Josh, you can enter the gospel ministry with these two great hopes before you, and I promise you they will never fail. What is a hope? Biblically, not humanly, not according to the English language, but what is a biblical hope? It is the confident expectation that something really good is ahead. Several years ago, the family and I were traveling home uh, from the Midwest, and it was a Sunday afternoon. I don't know if we had caught a morning service somewhere. We typically don't travel on Sundays, but for some reason on this Sunday we were traveling. And uh, if you ask my family, what is your favorite fast food restaurant? Where would you like to stop? The answer is Chick-fil-A. Okay, that's where they like to stop. And so we're traveling home. We were either going through Nashville or Knoxville, Tennessee. I don't remember which it was. And uh, I said, hey, let's stop for lunch. And everybody said, yes, Chick-fil-A. And they started looking for the nearest Chick-fil-A. We found one, pulled off the exit, went to the parking lot, and it was empty. 
Oh, we had a confident expectation. We had a hope, all right, but it wasn't founded. It didn't have a solid basis because Chick-fil-A is not open on Sundays. That's uh, one of the tenets of American patriotism. Don't you know that? Okay. But we have hopes, the hope of the gospel and the hope of glory that are based on the inerrancy of this book and based on the unchanging character of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He never changes. I want us to consider briefly and first of all the hope of the gospel. This confident expectation that something really good is ahead and it's based on the gospel, Paul says, when he mentions this term in verse number 23. Based on the fact that the gospel is what it is, Paul spoke of the hope that he had in the gospel. I want you to notice that his hope of the gospel was based on the fact, first of all, that the gospel is mighty to save. There are religious leaders of all different kinds of sects and cults and denominations that have devised systems that they thought would provide salvation for their followers. But there is only one gospel that is mighty to save, and it is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul said that this hope of the gospel was based on this characteristic of the gospel, that the gospel is mighty to save. Notice verse number 21. He says to these Colossian church members who were now believers, speaking of the time before they were saved, what their condition was before they trusted Christ as Savior. He said, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. What a great synopsis of the gospel. Through our own sin, separated from God, our creator, and yet God, out of his heart of love, sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He took upon himself a body of flesh so that blood could be shed to fulfill the biblical requirements. And Jesus died on the cross, sacrificing his body, shedding his blood, so that God's requirement for the payment for sin could be satisfied... Bible says that as a result of that, everybody who trusts in what Jesus did on their behalf is reconciled to God. The word reconciled speaks of being brought into complete and perfect harmony with. And get this, God didn't move in our direction except to send Jesus to us. It is the bringing of the sinner into a right relationship with God because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we have done. We simply trust in what he alone has done. But Paul spoke of the hope of the gospel because it is the only message that is mighty to save. And notice what the intent of saving mankind was. Verse number 22, the middle of the verse, God accomplished this work of reconciliation through the death of Christ on the cross for a specific purpose. Let me just preface by saying this. God didn't just save you and me to take us to heaven. If he did, then why are we still here? God saved us for a work that he wants to accomplish in our lives until he takes us to heaven. And that is to make us living, walking examples, testimonies of his power to save so that others can be drawn to Jesus Christ too. So what was the purpose of reconciliation? Notice this, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. 
Verse number 23, if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven. Now, let me mention this. On a surface reading, folks have read this passage, and when they see that if at the beginning of verse 23, they believe that that is a condition of salvation. That is not what Paul is saying. The condition that he is giving in verse number 23, if ye continue in the faith, is speaking of the presentation that the Son will make when we stand in the presence of God. Get this, it's not talking about a condition on our salvation, it's talking about a condition on our presentation. In other words, God saves you, He made a covenant with you when He saw that you trusted Him as Savior, the covenant of salvation, that stands no matter what. The Bible teaches once saved, always saved. I want you to get that, okay? But now he's in the process of sanctifying us, making us more like Jesus Christ. This is all a part of the work of the gospel in our lives so that one of these days when I do stand before the Lord, his intent in saving me was to be able to present me holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Holy, devoted to him, unblameable. That is without any blemish in me and unreprovable, not even an accusation brought against me. Now let me just tell you this. The only way that can happen is because of Jesus. Not because of anything that I do, but God has given me the responsibility of cooperating with him as he seeks to make me more like Jesus Christ in this life. And if I don't cooperate with him, then the indication is this. I'm going to heaven, but when I get there, it's not going to be with confidence. It's going to be with some shame. John would say it this way, 1 John 2, 28, My little children, abide in him that when he appears, ye may have confidence before him and not be ashamed at his coming. Paul said the reason Jesus saved you in the work of the gospel is to not only save you from the power of sin, but to save you, or from the penalty of sin, but to save you from the power of sin right now in this life. So that you can stand without shame, unblameable, unreprovable in the presence of God. And I want to say this, Josh, this morning. You can place your hope, your confident expectation of really good things that are ahead. You can place your confidence in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It alone has the power to save. It alone has the power to take men who look like the world and through the process of time make them more and more look like Jesus Christ. And as you faithfully proclaim it, you can do so with this wonderful hope of the gospel. The gospel is mighty to save. But I also notice this as we think about our hope being placed in the gospel. Why is the gospel worthy of our hope, of our confident expectation? Not only because it's mighty to save, but secondly, because this is the minister's stewardship. Paul twice refers to himself as being made a minister. Notice, if you would, verse number 23, towards the end of the verse. Whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Verse number 25, the first part of the verse, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister according to the dispensation. For that word dispensation, we can think the idea of a stewardship or a responsibility according to the dispensation of God, the responsibility of God, which he has given to me, a stewardship. So Paul refers to himself as a minister, one who literally goes through the dust to meet the need of others. And then he refers to himself as a steward. God has entrusted him with a responsibility. Now, why is this then a basis for hope? This hope of the gospel 
which secures us, which upholds us, which sustains us. Why is it well-founded? Because the gospel is mighty to save and because the gospel is the minister's stewardship given to him by God. God called you to this. Your daddy and mama didn't call you to this. God called you to this. God called you to this. This church did not call you to this. This church recognized God's call and affirmed God's call. Why am I saying this? Because you're not going off half-cocked. You're not working freelance. This isn't something you came up with on your own. You're not going rogue or renegade here. You march forward under the authority of the God of heaven. He is the one who is making you a minister. He is the one who has given you this stewardship, this responsibility to proclaim the gospel where he has called you to go, to share the riches of Christ in the Ivory Coast. He is the one who's given the stewardship. He is the one who's made you a minister of Christ in his church and one to reach the lost by preaching the gospel. I noticed this as well. The Bible says that this gospel in verse number 22 was preached, or 23, pardon me, was preached to every creature which is in, under heaven. It's been, you've been commissioned universally. Do you know what I love about this point? Wherever God sends you, the gospel works. Whether it's here in Columbus, North Carolina, Polk County, the, the Carolinas, upstate South Carolina, or West Africa, or Quebec, the gospel works. It's the only thing that works in every place. And it's been preached to every creature under heaven and so you've been given this stewardship. God made you the minister. You've been given this stewardship as a minister, which commissions you universally and gives you a message that works everywhere. And it is based on the word of God. Notice, if you would, verse number 25, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, that responsibility, that stewardship of God, which is given to me for you, notice this, to fulfill the word of God. This is not some man's idea. This is not some kind of collective awareness of a need that needs to be met. The gospel is based on the word of God. And you go forward on the authority and the word of God. Paul also says something interesting before we move to a third point under this thought. Paul was so overwhelmed at being made a minister of the gospel. Notice verse number 24 that he says, I now rejoice... <laughs> In my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. This stewardship that's been given to you in the gospel, that is the basis for your hope, that will anchor and sustain you no matter the difficulties that come. I want you to understand that the gospel stewardship is so worthy, it is so reliable, that the Apostle Paul said that any temporal suffering that he experienced was light, in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. The gospel stewardship was so worthy and reliable that any temporal suffering that he experienced, he could even say, I can rejoice in it. 
if that's the price, temporal price I have to pay, some physical suffering or persecution or deprivation, if that's the physical price I have to pay in order to proclaim this worthy and reliable life-transforming message that, as he would say in verse number 13, would deliver us from the power of darkness and translate us into the kingdom of God's dear Son, if the gospel is that reliable and worthy, and it is, then some physical suffering or temporal difficulty is worth going through to such a point I can can even rejoice in it because out of it the opportunity to preach the gospel to people who will be transformed eternally will result so the hope of the gospel based on the fact that the gospel is mighty to save you can put your confident expectation in it based on the fact that you and the hope of the gospel recognize it as the ministered stewardship that it's God that called you to do this you can place your hope in the gospel. But thirdly, I see this as we consider the hope of the gospel. The gospel is also a mystery shown or revealed. Notice, if you would, in verse number 25, Paul speaks, or verse number 26, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, looking all the way back to the beginning of time and then the history of the nation of Israel, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, what's the Bible say? Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory whom we preach. And so the hope of the gospel it's a confident expectation in the gospel because the gospel is mighty to save. It's the ministered stewardship given to you by God and it's a mystery that is now shown or revealed. It's as if Paul is saying this, all history and all scripture leading to this point culminates in the fact that Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament pictures. He is the final keystone. He is the apex of all prophecy. He is the final statement of God's revelation. He is the fulfillment of all of the pictures and the types of the Old Testament. He is the answer to every dilemma and the solution to every problem. Those things which have been a mystery throughout all of history to that time in the first century when Paul wrote this, all the way through the Old Testament and the types of the book of Leviticus and the sacrifices which Paul would say could never take away sin. All of them pointing to the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that he can be proclaimed. And the mystery is now shown. Christ is the fulfillment. And it gets even better Though Christ came through the Jewish people and God's work to that point had been predominantly through the Jewish people, Paul would even say that part of the mystery that is now revealed is that God's work through Jesus was not just for the Jews, but for Gentiles as well. And I think probably 99% of us in this room are Gentiles, and that's a really good point to say, thank God for that mystery being revealed. That Gentiles... Included in the riches of God's plan. Gentiles can experience the riches of God's goodness and grace because of the work of Jesus Christ. He is not just the lamb slain for Israel. He is the lamb slain from the foundations of the world for the world who will take away the sin of the world. And so the mystery is that the gospel is the fulfillment of of Christ and everything. That's why Spurgeon said you can take any text and go straight to the cross. 
You can start in Leviticus, you can start in Ecclesiastes, and ultimately, if you interpret that book rightly, it's about Jesus and pointing men to Christ. And so, Josh, you're upheld by the hope of the gospel. It's mighty to save. It's a stewardship that's been given to you, and it's the mystery revealed. I read recently of a father who had a good job, was able to pay his bills and meet the ends at the end of the month, but he didn't have a lot of extra money, but he wanted to treat his boys, and so he'd saved and scrimped, and he took his boys to the county fair. They went to the ticket booth at the entrance, and he had scrimped and saved and had a good amount of cash and spent it all on tickets for his three boys to just enjoy the fair. Whatever they wanted that day, he got enough tickets for them to experience everything they wanted. Just as they were walking away from the ticket booth, his three boys saw a buddy of theirs who didn't have a dad. And those boys saw him and they knew that he was much poorer than they were. And they knew that he was not going to get to enjoy anywhere near what they were going to get to enjoy today. And so they turned to their father and they said, Dad, do you think maybe, maybe you could buy some tickets for our buddy here so he can enjoy the fair too? And the father said, Boys, I've spent everything that I have. He goes, I don't have any more cash on me to buy tickets. He said, if I did, I would, but I don't. I've spent everything that I have on you, my sons. There was a moment of silence, and then the three little boys all looked at each other, and they said, well, Dad, would you be okay if we shared some of our tickets with our friend? And the dad was moved by his son's generosity, and he said, well, of course you can. And that little poor boy was able to come into the family and enjoy the blessings of the whole day because the son shared from the father's generosity. I want you to understand something. That is an illustration that has some flaws when it comes to comparison because there is no limit to my heavenly father's resources. But he has given in the riches of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and through Christ's payment, the riches of redemption purchased for you on the cross and for me on the cross. He has given to us access for all the riches, everything that we need through the abundance of his grace. And the son, because of the son, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, now is extended to you and to me everything that we need. And the son brings us into the inheritance of the father. What a tremendous hope. And so, Josh, the hope of the gospel is yours that will uphold you and sustain you and strengthen you. It's mighty to save. It's the minister's stewardship and the mystery of the Old Testament is now revealed in it. But I want you to notice the second hope, and I will move just briefly through this one. The second hope is the hope of glory. Paul references it down in verse number 27. God has made known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The word glory speaks of something that is bright and something that is weighty or with substance. When we speak of something that is glorious, we speak of that which in its brightness, it attracts attention. But it's not just something that's bright and flashy. It's something that even in being bright, it also has great substance or weightiness to it. We refer to the glory of God. When we speak of His beauty, of His brightness, of the attraction of His person and His attributes. But it's not like tinfoil or a wind chime. We're talking about that which has eternal weight and substance because of the person of God. And in that sense, we speak of the glory of God. 
And so when we speak of glory, we speak of something that is bright and something that has substance as opposed to that which diminishes, to that which is transient, to that which is vain. And Paul here speaks of the motivation of the hope of glory, that confident expectation that really good things are ahead and that really good thing is glory. That being said, as we look at the scripture, we understand glory as believers in several different aspects as it relates to us. The first is this. When we speak of glory as it relates to ourselves as believers, we talk about the prospect of our change. The work of glorification. When whether through death or the rapture, I shed this old sin-cursed body and am given a brand new glorified body just like Jesus' body. No more subject to sin. No more subject to sickness. It is a body that is fashioned just like Jesus' glorious body. And so we use the word glory to speak of that coming change. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse number 1, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle, our body, be dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. In 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 53, Paul would say this, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, and the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying which is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Twice, Paul said, we shall be changed. Speaking of that glorification, that glory that is coming. Philippians 3, verse number 20 and 21, Paul said, For our conversation, our citizenship is in heaven. From whence also we look for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. And what a hope this perspective of coming glory gives to us. Josh, it gives you the confidence and the authority to stand at the bedside of a sick and dying saint and tell them this is not the end. When you breathe your last here, you will wake up in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and there's a day coming when your spirit will be reunited with a glorified, resurrected body and you will live forever in that condition in the presence of the Lord. This is not the end. It's this hope of glory that gives you the confident ability to stand at a graveside of a departed believer and give hope and comfort to those loved ones who are grieving the homegoing, the loss temporarily of that loved one, to give them hope and tell them, this is not the end. We're sowing a seed in the ground today that on resurrection morning is going to come forth unto new life. This is not the last time the dirt of this grave will be stirred. You have that hope. But when we speak of glory and the hope of glory, as it relates to us as believers, we also speak of glory as a place. Twice in the scripture, the Lord Jesus is called the Lord of glory. 1 Corinthians 2 and James chapter number 2. He's the Lord of glory and the idea of that's where he came from. That's his home. That's his origination point. Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory. 
1 Timothy 3.16, the Bible tells us that Christ, after he finished his earthly work and raised from the dead, he ascended up or was received up into glory. It's another name for heaven. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 10, the Bible tells us that part of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ was to bring many sons to glory. And so glory is a place. It's not a figment of somebody's imagination. Glory is a place where all those who've trusted Christ as Savior are going someday. And let me just tell you, you're going to live there a whole lot longer than you've lived in any earthly home. The glory of a prospect of change, and that's a hope. The glory of a place, an eternal home, but ultimately, whether it's the glory that speaks of our change that is coming or the glory that speaks of a place, I want you to understand that this hope of glory is wrapped up ultimately not in a prospect and not in a place, but in a person. Do you see what Paul says? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is the glory of God. John 1:14. As a matter of fact, in chapter number 2, the apostle Paul would say that in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and we are complete in him, and Christ is all in all. In other words, if you have Jesus, you have everything. Okay? He is the proof that the place we call glory exists. We don't need a yellow book that was a bestseller a decade or so ago with a picture of a cute little boy on it and the title, Heaven is for Real, in order to tell us or prove to us that heaven is for real. God took care of that 2,000 years ago when he sent his only son from his home to come to earth to tell us about heaven and to invite all who would believe him to go and live there eternally with him someday. He is the proof of the place. He is the power that will provide the change. And now the Lord Jesus Christ, the hope of this glory, is permanently with us and in us. I was overwhelmed before I moved to a conclusion. I was overwhelmed as I thought about this passage to notice in verse number 21, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, Yet now through the reconciliation of God, the, the, body of the, the, uh, the, the, the body of the flesh of Christ and its suffering death for us, and all the intent of that, that they who were sometime alienated and enemies in their mind by wicked works are now the very ones that Paul could say of them in verse number 27. You who used to be alienated and enemies, you are now the very ones in whom Christ dwells. What a transformation. Christ in you. And with the purpose of presenting them twice, Paul in this passage speaks of the desire, the purpose to present believers holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight, verse 22, and then down in verse number 28, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. The word present is interesting. It literally means to stand beside. So that when Paul talks about presenting these believers to the Lord or to the Father in heaven, it's literally the idea of his standing by our side with us. He who is the second person of the Trinity, 
because of his payment for your sins and mine and his plan for us, when we are presented to the Father, the picture is this, he will stand beside us as our advocate. What an amazing thought. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, Josh, you have the hope of glory, you have the hope of the gospel. In our world, in the last century or two, we have identified a class of investors and we call them speculators. The speculator is someone who takes big risks based on an educated guess. One dictionary I read in looking up the definition of speculators was honest enough to use this word, they're betting. <laughs> but I want you to understand that the hope that you and I have is not based on speculation. There are those that speculate in the financial world. They'll buy in or sell stocks based on the fluctuation of the price and hope to be able to buy when the price is low and then the price will go up, they speculate, and they'll become wealthy. There are speculators in the real estate world that will buy up land hoping that its price increases and then they can sell it for a great profit. There are speculators in the sports world who will invest millions of dollars in some 19 to 20 year old prospect in hopes that he'll become a superstar athlete. I want you to understand that the hope that you and I have is not speculation. By the speculators of this world, many hopes will be dashed, even lives ruined and broken. But the hope of the gospel and the hope of the glory is a confident expectation, not that good things, really good things might come, but that really good things are coming. There's no speculation in the ministry. You have a confident expectation of really good things ahead, the hope of the gospel and the hope of glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for how you've challenged my heart this morning. And I trust Josh and Katie's heart and the heart of others here. I thank you for the hope of the gospel, the confident expectation of its ability to save. And I thank you for the hope of glory, the truths of Scripture and the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ that demonstrate to us beyond any doubt whatsoever of what our future is and the future of all those that we minister to and who trust Christ as Savior. Lord, I pray that as difficult days will come, that you would recall the hope of the gospel and the hope of glory to Josh and Katie. And when all around their soul seems to give way, I pray that they would be reminded that you are their hope and stay. And on Christ, the solid rock, we stand. And we pray these things in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen.